Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. All right. Well, uh, last week, I thought Pastor Martin did a wonderful job bringing us through the, the contrasting Peter and Cornelius. And we got to take a look at, uh, at good enough isn't good enough to be saved and bad enough isn't bad enough. I love that. Right? Salvation is through Christ or through faith alone in Christ. And salvation is for all people. So this week we're going to pick up in Acts 11. And, uh, and that's where we're going to start. And it kind of, really it's going to continue the story because it starts with Peter defending his actions to the Gentiles. Right? Because he went to Cornelius, he was eating with them. And that's where Acts 11 is going to pick up. But I thought I would just kind of bring it together as I was, as I was praying, especially this morning. Um, I was kind of reflecting on it's been a year. You know, it's, it's been a year since, you know, I took on this, this new role, and we began really focusing on giving our yes to Jesus. And I just, you know, it's been a wonderful journey this past year, uh, watching so many of you give your yes, and I've been trying to give my yes, and we've been giving our feeble best attempts, right? Uh, but we're watching God do an amazing work in our midst, and I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing that should be celebrated. Uh, but at the same time, we haven't arrived, Right? Until we're actually standing before Jesus in glory, we haven't arrived and we've got to continue uh, giving that yes. And I thought about Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel, the question is posed, if a righteous man turns at the end of his life to unrighteousness, what will he be remembered for? And, and the Lord says it's a very sobering fact that his, that his previous righteousness will be forgotten, but he'll be remembered for the unrighteousness that he clung to at the end. And that's a sobering passage, but the converse is true. If an unrighteous person that wastes everything in their life, the prodigal son that wastes all their inheritance at the end of their life turns to God and gives their yes and, and lives a righteous life, they'll be remembered for that. And so we want to be faithful with the call, and giving our yes isn't about getting re-saved all the time. But it is about living for Jesus as our only Savior and our functional Lord. And that is something that we do daily. We daily pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And that's, uh, that's what I want to focus on today because we're going to kind of bring Acts to a close and we're going to look at what that yes means, counting the cost. And, and it fits really well within here. I mean, I, well, it's not really that I fit. I just kind of read it this, uh, when I was doing prep. So anyways, we'll start here in Acts 11. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. If not, I will put it on the screens. Um, or you can just listen, and that's totally fine too, because I'll be reading it out loud. Uh, so whatever you prefer is all good, but we're going to be going right into the Word now. Starting in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Okay, so last week, remember Martin had kind of covered, don't call unclean what I call clean. Peter gets the vision, right? And then uh, the, the men come to the door and bring that, that Cornelius had sent those men to go get Peter because he was instructed by an angel and then Peter was instructed by an angel to go with. They receive Jesus as, as Savior. They receive the Holy Spirit and all of Cornelius and his household gave their lives, lives to Christ. It's a pretty incredible story. Um, so picking up here now, Peter now is coming back and he's going to report to the church. So he's giving a report to the church and it says right away here that there's criticism against what he has done. So, yeah, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them, but Peter began and explained, in, uh, explained it in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying 
And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, bringing down uh, its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals, beasts of prey, and reptiles, and birds of the air. So this is kind of what we covered last week, but I'm just going through it again. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Right? God, I've, I've tried to keep your law to the best of my ability. I've tried to be set apart to the best of my ability. I'm, I'm going to stay that way. I want to be set apart. I want to do the right thing. And yet, the voice answered a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And, and so right here already, you can see um, Peter's having his theology corrected. Right? Sometimes we have our best intentions. We know exactly what God wants. And, and we've heard this lots in the last probably few years. I'm not going to pick on anyone here. But I've heard that lots in the last few years of what God would do. Right? If you're for Jesus, you would only do this. And if you're for Jesus, you would only do this. Or this would be your opinion. And, and, and Peter's like that. And Jesus is about to correct his theology. You know, something Pastor Ray said years ago. If you've never had the Holy Spirit correct your theology, you might not be listening close enough. And I would agree with that. Even Peter had his theology corrected. So, picking up in verse 10, this happened three times, and he was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at the very moment, three men arrived at the house in which they were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Uh, making no distinction. Here, where am I? These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Sorry, I'm just going to follow along. I'm trying to keep you up to date here. Uh, where did I go? Now I'm losing myself. Oh, and he told us how he had the, uh, seen the angel stand in the house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, this, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And now I love their response. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And uh, so there's so much that we could actually take out of there, but the first thing we're going to look at is your yes equals, or your yes means all are welcome at the table. And this is actually a very important thing. You know, it's interesting when you back up, but oh, I'll first make, no, no, I'll get to that later. In, in verse 3, what's interesting is they had no problem with Peter preaching. There was no problem with Peter going and preaching to Gentiles. Peter could go and preach to anyone he wants. Uh, they thought the gospel needed to go up. People needed to hear about Yahweh, and, and they had no problem with that. Their problem had to do with their own customs, their man-made customs, but their own traditions on, on, on uh, how they related to socially Gentiles. Would they eat with Gentiles? See, and, and that's where the, the, the spot of contention is. And Peter already knows this because they didn't even call Peter. Peter's going to the church to defend it. He already knows what happened in Acts chapter 10 is going to create a bit of a stir. And, you know, do we do this today? The question I had when I was going through this is, do we do this today? I mean, would we ever feel like, you know, we can go and preach the good news to anybody. You can go and tell anyone you want. I mean, go and tell the world that they're sinners. 
But don't be caught hanging out with the wrong people or people that have different beliefs or different lifestyle choices or political leanings or a different opinion on COVID or things like that. You know, you want to be careful on who you associate with because association means approval in our eyes often. See, that's not a new problem. That's an age-old problem. That's exactly what was happening here. So they were set apart and they wanted to live that set apart ways. Jewish culture, like many, uh, like many today, saw eating together as sacred. You didn't just eat with anyone. So they did see it a little bit differently than we do. I mean, I don't know that I would definitely see it as sacred to go to McDonald's with someone, although I don't really go to McDonald's. But if I did and enjoyed a Big Mac, is anyone else hungry for a Big Mac right now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Anyways, but we wouldn't see that necessarily as sacred, but to them it was. They used the table and they used meals together as a way of, of approving of people, of declaring social status. I mean, rich people wouldn't eat with poor people. Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. You didn't associate with people that were different than you. Right? I mean, the table was often used to segregate. You're, you're even given warnings, right? Like, don't come and sit at the place of honor, you know, at a table and then have the, the you know, the honored guest put you to the back. So the table was a big deal back in Jewish culture, and it still is in many other cultures today. And, and the big point here is Jews wouldn't eat with Gentiles. They considered them to be unclean. And what you see that Jesus already was doing in, in, the, uh, in the Gospels is what was one of the things that they hated about Jesus is that he was constantly eating with sinners. We talk about Jesus, friend of sinners, right? And now when you hear Jesus, friend of sinners, do you think of a negative connotation or a positive one? Positive, right? I mean, we're like, Jesus, friend of sinners, that's good because I'm a sinner. But when it was originally given, when he was being accused of being Jesus, friend of sinners, it was negative. It was negative. It wasn't a positive thing. Matthew 9, we'll pick up here, and Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, they, they saw him sharing a meal as his approval of their behavior. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, Jesus was a master at breaking man-made rules. Right, we're human nature. Like, it's actually very much human nature. We, we create cliques, we create bubbles, uh, we segregate. Uh, we, we're very tribal in that sense, right? We have those in our tribe, and then there's those outside of our tribe. And whether that be a cultural difference or racial, it could be uh, social or socioeconomic. It could be uh, related to finances. There's all sorts. But we see it in our culture. It was, it was in, in their time, James confronted it, right? If you treat a rich person with, with fine clothing and a, and a golden ring differently than a poor person, then you're creating differences, distinctions amongst each other. And he actually called it evil. See, Jesus came, and, and that was one of the things he loved to do, is he tore down racial, ethnic, class, and gender barriers. We see him talking to women, uh, uh, give, uh, promoting them, giving them status. He'd be sitting and eating with sinners. He did all of that kind of stuff, and I love that about Jesus. So, you know, our world right now often champions things like what? Social justice, racism. We talk about tolerance. 
letting people be their authentic self, right? But even when we take a look at things like social justice and racism, I find it very interesting that some people will look at the church and say that the God of the Bible is racist or bigoted. Actually, the answer to our social problems, the answer to, to racism, isn't going to be found in a social problem. The answer is actually found in Christians giving their yes to Jesus and actually living that out. Jesus lived that out. He tore down those barriers. He created all people in his image, and he treated them accordingly. That's actually the answer to a lot of our woes, right? So, anyhow, Augustine said this. I love this quote. I actually just read it recently. I hadn't heard it before. And he said, love God and do whatever you want. Interesting quote, isn't it? Love God and do whatever you want. You're like, wait a second. No, no, no. You don't want to love God and do whatever you want. You want to love God, I guess, and do whatever he wants. You see, but if we actually park on what it means to love God, to truly love God first, you understand that the second part of it totally makes sense. Because if you truly love God, if you truly don't, you know, if you truly uh, try not to, um, you know, break the first commandment to have other gods before him, if you put God first, love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, what are you going to want to do? Interesting thing, right? So he created all people in his image. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God. So just a couple of practical considerations here. All are welcome at the table. So, do you spend more time showing love to people or worrying about approving of their lifestyles? It's just something to think about. I'm not, by the way, we all have to wrestle this. Like, I remember having, again, I think I've shared this here before, but I had a a dad once ask me, his daughter had come out as gay, she had moved out of the house, she moved in with her girlfriend, and they wanted to come over for supper and he wasn't sure what to do. Like, what do you do? Can you have them over for supper? It's not a bad thing to ask. I mean, to to ask these questions isn't bad. He was trying to wrestle it through because we're trying to do the right thing. And I had pointed back to him. I said, well, what if she had moved out and moved in with a boy? What would you do then? Well, then I would have them over for supper. I said, well, there you have your answer. And he said, yeah, but what if they start making out on the couch? I said, well, what if she had a boyfriend and she started doing that? What would you do then? I'd tell him to stop it. There you go. You tell them to stop it. See, sometimes like, what we do is we create these polarized issues where there doesn't actually need to be. And if we would spend more time trying to first be loving, trying to show people that they're valuable, that we see them, that we see them as image bearers. Not because of what they do, like, but, but because of who they are and whose image they were created in. And I get it. We're worried about, well, what about the approval of behavior? And we do have to worry about that. But I would say on that, don't approve of the behavior. Your love doesn't approve of people's behavior. Your love shows value to the person. If I, if I compromise my beliefs and start saying that the Christian sexual ethic is wrong and the cultural sexual ethic is right, that's compromising on truth. Loving people is simply doing what God has asked us to do. Right? So anyhow, do we spend more time showing love to people or worrying about approving of their lifestyle? And by the way, this has, I, I use sexuality as an example there because it's a hot-button topic. But that could be anything. You know, COVID was very polarizing. Right? You had people on both sides saying what God would do. I heard a lot of it because of my position, right? So you hear God would definitely, like Jesus was here, he'd be wearing a mask. If Jesus was here, there's no way he'd wear a mask. If Jesus was here, he'd get the vaccine. If Jesus was here, he wouldn't get the vaccine. 
because it's about loving people. And I, and I totally get that. So those opinions aside, they create polarities even within the church. So then are we staying separate from people that think or believe differently than us? Or are we able to look past these things, truly becoming tolerant, right? Anyhow, these are things to think about. The other question would be, are you friends with any unbelievers? Are you friends with anybody that you disagree with? Or are all the people around you, do they all think and believe exactly the way you do? Now, I know there's a, there is a danger on this one, and that is, do not be deceived. Bad company <laughs> ruins good morals, right? So there is truth on that. We don't want to have all of our best friends being people that believe differently than us or being unbelievers. We want to be plugged into the church. Absolutely, yes. Plugged into groups of people that are believing and thinking like us so we can strengthen each other, encourage each other. Absolutely, yes. But do we use any of our time in our life, our heart space, our finances, to go and show people that don't know Jesus or don't think the way we do that Jesus loves them too? For them, it was the table. For us, it might be something different. So who can you invite to your table? That's the other practical consideration. All right. Now, the pressure to form cliques and stay within our safety bubbles is strong. It's human nature. Like I said, we are tribal by nature. We form our tribes, and whoever's with me is with me, and whoever's against me is against me. And we're not called to fight. Remember we talked about cruise ship to battleship? We're not fighting against people, we're fighting for people. And that's part of what our yes means, is that we're not just going to stay inside of our bubble, we're actually going to go and be inclusive in the sense of we're going to love people, even those that are different than us or believe differently than us. And that's really important. You know, when you look at Galatians uh, 2, by the way, because you see Peter. Peter's the one that receives the vision, right? So he's the one, I've never, I've never eaten anything unclean. He goes to Cornelius. He eats with the Gentiles. He does that. He comes back, defends his actions to the council. And I'm not sure exactly how long I should have looked it up, but in Galatians 2, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story, Galatians 2, Paul talks about having to confront Peter. Why? Well, here they are kind of at Antioch, and in Galatians 2, Paul confronts Peter at Antioch because Peter was segregating again. See, listen to how Paul talks about it. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He's fearing the approval of man. What will other people think? I don't want to come across as being seen as approving. Like, I want people to be happy with me. I want them to like me. Look at Paul, Paul's response to that. And the rest of the Jews, this was the, this was the fruit of Peter doing that, is that the rest of the Jews also acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, or Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So anyways, I won't park in there for too long other than to say, Peter's life gives me hope. Doesn't he give you hope? Like, Peter's like, Lord, I will die for you. And then he denies him. Right? He gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and the next minute, like, he's, he's, he's falling into sin again. He's the one that brings the gospel to the Gentiles. He's defending that we're going to eat with these people. They are just like us. God has made no distinction. We won't make distinctions. And a very short period of time later, he's once again making distinctions. And to me, that gives me a lot of hope not, not as, a, as a license to make mistakes, but also just to see that God was able to use someone like Peter. He took his yes, even though Peter continuously fumbled the ball. So, do we do this today, though? 
That's the question. Do we treat people differently because of their beliefs, political leanings, opinions, lifestyle choices, race, status, or think about this in school, popularity? You know, years ago, I remember when I, I was in grade 10. So grade 10 used to be when high school started. Grade 9 is so weird. Like, that's such a weird thing. I'm not used to that yet. I don't understand it. I don't understand who made that decision or why. Anyhow, that's a whole other conversation. God bless them. Anyways, I'm going to grade 10, and I have a friend, I won't say who it is, who is going into grade 12. And he had a sit-down meeting with me before, I, before the first day of school to tell me, because we were friends, to tell me that now that we're in the same school, I shouldn't talk to him when at school. He didn't want to be seen as being friends with this new grade tenor, and he didn't know if I'd be liked or not. That was a horrible feeling. It was a horrible feeling to have someone see that, right? Like, I'll be your friend in private, but we're not gonna, yeah, if it comes into public, I'm gonna pretend like I don't know you, but don't take it personal. That's why Paul actually, he didn't treat it like it was a small thing. Paul, Paul actually confronted him and he saw it as a sin that was causing, it was leading other people astray and it was hurting people and God takes it seriously, right? So that's why, again, do we treat people differently because of their beliefs, political leanings, opinions on COVID, lifestyle choices, sexuality, race, status, or popularity? And I'm not talking about do you approve of everyone else? You don't have to agree with everyone else, but do you treat them differently? Do you show them kindness? Do you show them love? Do you treat them like they're an image bearer? That's the question. Okay. Moving on. Acts 11. Where are we at? 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Those were just non, like Greek-speaking non-Jews. That, that's who they were also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was on them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now I should pause, that, that word Christians only used three times. At this point, it was actually a derogatory term. So they don't, it wasn't actually a positive thing. Now we're, it's kind of turning to that now again, isn't it? Where you don't necessarily want to say that you're a Christian anymore, it's derogatory, but it was derogatory when it first came out. It wasn't a badge of honor, right? So anyways... Now in these days the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world and this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. All right, so first thing is yes means the Father's business is our business. Something that you're going to pick up here, and, and this is very important, and I kind of alluded to it in a prayer before, but uh, I don't know if it's, is it a song, Jesus Take the Wheel? Is that a song? Can someone sing it? <laughs> Come on, just break out in song, man. Okay, maybe not. Whatever, but 
like, I'm not saying it's bad to sing the song. So if you were a big fan of Jesus, take the wheel of my life, um, that's, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, I was listening to a, a teacher, uh, someone, so I was in a course last year. Anyways, and one of my teachers had kind of proposed the idea that one of our problems in the West is that, is that we're always trying to get Jesus to come onto our boat and bless our, our travels wherever we're going. Like, this is the direction I'm going in. Jesus, come in and take the wheel. And what we mean by that is, like, I don't want to hit potholes. I don't want to hit the ditch. I don't want to careen into another vehicle. So, Jesus, take, the, take the, the wheel of my life so that I can be a passenger, enjoy the ride without having any problems. Now, we wouldn't say that, or I hope you wouldn't sing that. I hope not. Uh, but that's often the way we approach our faith in the West. But that is not what the scripture actually talks about. The scriptures talk about, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and and gave himself for me. So there's this idea of an exchange. What we're actually doing is getting out of our car, and we're actually entering into Jesus' car, which he is already driving. We're becoming a part of his ship. Does that make sense, that little bit of a distinction? And, and the, the reason why that's important is because how you view that, that interaction is going to change how you prioritize your life. Like, if it's Jesus take the wheel of my life, then I'm going to live my life with my priorities, right? Like, I have my, like I have my personal self, so I've got to take care of me. I mean, if you're into that. Well, your family. Family's important. Not that these things are bad. I've got to work. Um, I've I got to work so that that's important. And I have my kids. That's important. Right? Maybe I have some dreams that I want to fulfill and I want to go on a special holiday. I have a bucket list of something that I want to do. I mean, not that those things are inherently wrong, but if, if it's Jesus take the wheel, I'm always going to approach that with a Jesus come and make this work. See, and if we change that, if we start realizing that actually the exchange that happened at salvation is, I said, my life, I was, I was nothing but a sinner. Broken beyond repair. I couldn't fix myself. I couldn't rescue myself. I needed a savior. So I'm giving up my life. That's why he says those who don't take their cross and follow me, right? We climb up onto a cross, we die, so that his life can now be lived through us. Meaning we change, we exchange our life for his. And thank God for that. Because when I stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, I don't want him to judge me based on my actions, but on his. Amen? It's by his righteousness that we're saved. And so that's an important thing, and you'll see it manifested right away here. I mean, life wasn't easy for the early believers. They're being persecuted, and yet what do we find they're busy doing? They're busy doing the Father's business because that's why they're here. That was their job. That's what they had been tasked to do. They weren't just trying to get Jesus to bless their lives. So that's important. So persecution is ramping up. Verse 12 says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. I mean, wouldn't you guys love to see a revival here? Right? I mean, I would love to see revival here. You know, looking at church history, even in the last couple hundred years, where there has been revival, we've seen nations turn around. Revival would be a wonderful thing to see. But revival doesn't happen in a place where we're just saying, Jesus, take the wheel of my life and help me avoid potholes. Like, those kind of moves of God happen when we get on our knees before him and we, and we say, Lord, I'm done living my life. Whatever is your way is my way. If it costs me everything, I'm, putting, I'm all in, Lord. 
Anyways, the Holy Spirit gave them wisdom. We pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. We were just praying for that earlier. We pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. We want to see the spiritual gifts. I mean, spiritual gifts, yes, absolutely. Miracles, yes, absolutely. And we saw the Spirit working in great power in the early church. But he wasn't working in great power to give everyone their best life now. He was working in great power to accomplish the Father's business. That's what he gave them power to do. And sometimes, I mean, that was power, like boldness to witness, right? I mean, he gave them words of encouragement. He gave them predictions of the future. He told them what was going to happen so they could prepare. He also gave them unique understanding of Scripture so that they understood Scripture, even those who weren't educated and trained. The Holy Spirit would actually give them illumination and they would understand it. They would see truth. It's incredible. Right? I think, uh, I'm not sure, I think Pastor Chris covered that in Acts 4. So that was awesome. That's earlier. But that's what the Holy Spirit did. And he also empowered many of them to die and to die well. So that's your yes means Father's business is our business. So let's go on to Acts 12. Oh, we're good. Yeah. Acts 12. We're picking up here. And we're only going to get a little bit further, and then we're going to kind of stop and we'll wrap it up. But uh, I'm going to go 12 verses in in Acts. And about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So just so you know a little bit about uh, Herod, this is Herod Agrippa, grandson of Herod the Great. I had to look this up. And nephew of Herod the Tetrarch. And so he's persecuting. So there's a lot of Herods, and they all did a lot of bad things. Okay, so that's to summarize. But this Herod, Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa, he was actually uh, he was an observer of Jewish law. He actually observed Jewish law. He actually liked the Jewish culture, and he loved the Jewish people that way. Uh, but he also was known to like stamp out any kind of rebellion or anyone who was disruptive. He did horrible and wicked and evil things to. And so they don't know, you know, it doesn't really record, is it the Pharisees or the Sadducees that kind of incited him against the Christians? We're not totally sure. But at some point here, you know, we get this first verse, and it says he starts laying violent hands on some who belong to the church, and then he sees that it pleases the Jews, and that just kind of encourages them to do that all the more. And this is very important for us to actually get. I mean, again, their yes, think about this, that yes, their, 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 business, their father's business is their business. That yes didn't lead them into a lot of prosperity. The early church didn't see prosperity like we would like we would measure it. Like I would measure prosperity. I start a business, and that business grows. I start a church. That church grows. Uh, numbers are added. Financial numbers grow, right? I mean, that, isn't that prosperity? They were prosperous in a whole other way, like we just read. And daily, people were added to their numbers. That's how they were prosperous. That's how they were prosperous. But the early church, I mean, when you look at what they, they did, they were disruptive. I mean, they were going around saying, Jesus is Lord. Now, Today you could say Jesus is Lord, no one's really going to care unless you actually live that way. Right? But just to say Jesus is Lord, yeah, yeah, you do you, you live your truth, I'll live mine. But back then, it enraged Rome because Caesar was Lord, and it enraged the Jews because God alone was Lord and Jesus was not, and they had just crucified him. And yet they were going around proclaiming the good news at great cost to themselves. You know, I, a, a question I wanted to, for us to just think about here for just a moment. When you say Jesus is Lord, what does that mean to you? 
Can you see his lordship in your life? Maybe I'll put it another way. Would you say you're primarily a God pleaser or a people pleaser? See, we're entering at a time again, you know, um, I think it was Pascal's wager, and it's actually, it makes total sense. It's a logical way to kind of look at salvation. But one of the things he said is, you know, to live, if, if, we're, if, if we're right as Christians and we believe, we're saved, right? But if we're wrong, we've just lived a better life. And but for an unbeliever, if you're right and there is no God and you die, then nothing happens. But if you're wrong, you could spend an eternity in hell. So it's a logical kind of way to look at, well, hedge your bets. Your best bet is just to believe in Jesus. And that way you're assured that either you live a good life and nothing happens at the end, or you live a good life and in the end you go to heaven. But when I look at Scripture, when I look at the actual details of their lives, I don't know that we would call them good lives by our standard of good. They were losing family members. They lost their jobs. They were hungry. They were beaten. They were chased from one town to the next. They weren't popular. I don't know if I would say, you know, if, if they're wrong. I think Paul was right when he said, if, if we're wrong then we are the most pitied of all people. Anyways, if we're going to truly live for Jesus, not just call him Lord, but live for him, we will not be able to please people and God all the time. Now, sometimes those things will go, go together, but not always. And I'll give you two examples, because the culture will turn on us, but also even within the church, people will turn on us that view things differently. But look at, look at sexuality for just one thing, and I know we pick on that a little bit, only because it's such a spot of contention in the culture. But when you look at the sexual ethic of Christianity versus the culture, and the culture would say expressing yourself sexually in whatever way you choose is like the epitome of being your authentic self, being loving, loving and like, you know, being a good person, right? And anyone who would oppose that is seen as a bigot. And yet what we're saying is sexuality, it doesn't matter if you're heterosexual or homosexual, it actually doesn't matter. Any sex outside of one, the marriage between one man and one woman is sinful. And not only is, are, are we saying that it's sinful, we're actually saying that any sex outside of that plan is harmful for you, harmful for those around you, and harmful to society. That's what Scripture teaches. If you're going to hold to that, the world's not going to love you for that. That's not going to help you live your best life now. That's going to turn people against you. But it is the words of life that will also set others free. But even within the church, I just heard recently a story, and I wish I remembered the whole thing. I couldn't. You ever have it where you're, getting, you're absorbing so much information and you can't remember where you heard what? Anyhow, I heard this story of a missionary, and they were just kind of talking about this missionary who had gone to a cannibal tribe and had lost his life, right, and left a wife and kids behind. I think me and my wife were listening to it on the way to Tobemory. And anyways, they were just talking about the response of many Christians in the West, and that was that, you know, you knew it was dangerous to go there. You have a wife and kid at home. That's a terrible, that's a terrible decision. It's a tragic way to lose or, or to end a story. Right, when you have a family to go and give your life for the kingdom, what a tragic way to use your life. Whose family is more important? God's family or ours? 
who are we living for? Him or for ourselves? These are questions we have to wrestle with. And I'm not saying, by the way, some can swing to the other side and say, well, my family's unimportant. I just got to live and just serve all my time in the church. That's all that matters. No, there's an imbalance on both sides, but we should ask ourselves these questions. A yes to God means that his business becomes our business. We're actually surrendering our lives to him. All of it. All of it. Yeah. Anyways, so moving on in uh, chapter 12, Herod's laying hands on those belonging to the church. He kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, most likely to, to crucify him as well, or to, or to kill him anyways. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him uh, uh, to God by the church. And I love that. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding the prison. Like, that's wild, right? So get the picture of him. He's bound with two chains, not just the one which was customary. So they got two chains on him. They have literal guards sitting beside him on both sides. He's in a small prison cell. And then there's guards at the, the door, at the cell, guarding the door, all in addition to the guards that are already guarding the prison. Picture painted? Isn't that wild? Like, that would be the impenetrable. Like, there is no hope for Peter to get out. Like, Peter isn't sitting there waiting for someone to set him free. Peter's in there waiting for his turn to die. That's where Peter's at. So anyways, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side. I love that. I, like, I don't know, was it a good cheap shot in the ribs or maybe in the kidneys? <laughs> give him a little poke, a poke in the side. Maybe give your neighbor a poke. No, don't do that. Uh, anyways, and uh, the angel says, get up quickly, and, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to an iron gate. Leading into the city, it opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where the people were gathered and were praying. Okay, so that's all the scripture we're going to read, but there's two more points that I want to grab out of there, and, uh, and then we'll close it off. So first off, <laughs> I just love it that Peter is totally sleeping and he thinks he's dreaming. Can you imagine, like, can you actually imagine being set free like that? Wouldn't you assume that was a dream too? Like, you, you just kind of stand up, your chains fall off, and you just walk out, like these guys are standing there, they're guarding. And by the way, they're guarding, if you read a little bit further, we don't have time to go there. After Herod examines them, they're put to death. So I guess the kind of custom at that time was uh, if you failed at your job as a prison guard, whatever sentence that that person was going to serve was usually applied to you. So if they were going to be executed and you let them get away, you would be executed. And that's what happened to them. So they all got executed for it. So you can see it's not just like, you know, a casual job at McDonald's. Nothing wrong with a job at McDonald's. But it's not a casual job at McDonald's where you can just kind of drop the ball and it doesn't matter. They'll just keep paying you and give you another shot. I mean, your life's at stake here. 
So they're not just sleeping on the job. They know that if Peter gets out, their life is on the line. And that's why Peter thinks he's dreaming. I mean, the, the chains come off. He stands up. The door opens. He gets outside. He's all the way outside of the prison uh, before he actually realizes that what's happening is true. And I think that's pretty amazing. You know, have you ever heard of the story of Brother Yun, the heavenly man? I wish we had time to go through that. But he has a very similar story. And I believe with his story, his feet were broken when he got up and walked out and also thought it was a dream. And it wasn't until he was in a taxi outside that, that he realized that he was awake and not dreaming that God had actually set him free miraculously. And I think stories like that are just absolutely incredible. But going back to what a yes means, okay? So here, yes equals everything flows from prayer. Now, I know we talk about prayer a lot. We start our services with prayer and we encourage prayer, but it can't be overstated. It can't be overstated. G.I. Packer said something that I just absolutely love. It's stuck with me ever since I, the first time I read it in his book, uh, Knowing God. And he had made a bold claim, because you know sometimes when you read, he's, he's an elderly gentleman, but sometimes you read, read something and it almost rubs you the wrong way the first time you read it, but you know there's something to it. That's how I felt. Because he said, show me how much time that you, that you spend in prayer, and I'll show you the depth in which you know God. He didn't mince any words. He didn't care about anything else that you did in your life. That wasn't the focus. He just said, you show me how much time you spend in prayer, and I'll show you how much you know God. Because he said wild things like, even a quadriplegic has great purpose on the earth, because what greater purpose could there be than to partner with God in prayer and to see his will be accomplished here on the earth? Like just a radical shift in way of thinking. And yet, this is exactly the kind of radical shift in the way that's th- uh, of thinking that we see Jesus uh, adhering to within the Gospels, but also the early church adhered to. The early church is praying. Verse 5, they're praying. They, they're, they're praying desperate prayer. Verse 12, he comes to the door. They didn't even, <laughs> I mean, the, the servant girl doesn't even let him in. We don't have time to go through that. But what are they doing? They're still praying. They're still praying. So, anyhow... See, yes means everything flows from prayer. So the question I would have on this one is simply here. The mountains, what are the challenges of the mountains that you are facing? Maybe it's personal, maybe it's with your kids, maybe it's with a friend. Are you bringing that to God in prayer? And if you are, how much time are you spending on it in prayer? Are you bringing it to him regularly in prayer? Your prayer life above almost anything else. And that's what I love about prayer because it's one of those things. I mean, when you pray and, you, you know, especially when you're in that, you're getting to know God and you're learning, you're growing in your faith and you're praying and you're starting to see things answered. But prayer is an exercise where if you're someone who likes to get things done and you're not totally bought into the idea that all things should come through prayer and that God can do anything in your life, you're going to find prayer to be a great waste of time. Because I could be busy doing something. So your prayer life actually tells you a lot about your view of God and your view of the world and your view of yourself. So, are you lifting your stuff in prayer? Let's go to the next point. And this is the last one we'll look at. Yes means or equals we trust God to do what is best. Now I would think everyone in here would say we agree with that statement, right? Like, do you trust God to do what is best? I'd like to think I do. But what happens when you face uh, an illness or sickness or pain in your life 
that he doesn't just take away. What happens when it's mental health or depression or anxiety and maybe it's one of your kids and you see them struggling? What about an addiction that you continue to battle and fight against and you're like, God, I, I remember being here. God, like, you know my heart. I don't want to do this anymore. Just take it away. Like, why are we even struggling here? Just take it away. What if it's someone that's walked away from the Lord that, that you care about? Do you trust God to do what is best? Right? Our yes will cost something. It does. It totally does. We trade our lives for Christ. It's true. And the result is we will bear fruit. If we give God our yes and actually live that out, we will bear fruit. Jesus said it in John 15. Like he said, it's, it's an automatic. You will bear fruit if you actually abide in him. And that's part of what abiding is, is giving our yes and following it through. But it's also going to cause you to face hardship. You know, we look at the story of Peter being freed. I love the whole story. You can read the rest of it in your devotions uh, this week. But it's an incredible story. I mean, the church gathers, they pray, and Peter is miraculously set free. I mean, what bondage are you facing is harder to overcome than guards on both sides, guards at the door, locked prison door, locked chains. What are you facing that's harder than that? And yet the very line before it said Peter was in prison and the church prayed, what does it say? James, the brother of John, was what? Killed. Have you ever just stopped to try to think John is his brother? How do you think John felt about that exchange? James is dead. Peter's alive. I mean, you're glad Peter's alive, right? You are. Of course you are. But Lord, why not James too? I mean, if you could set Peter free in the middle of all, like four squadrons of guards, it says, surely you could have kept his head attached to his body. See, if you're a Christian long enough, and maybe sometimes when you start off this way too, but if you're a Christian long enough, you will eventually have to face questions and dilemmas like this. Why does God heal one and not the other? I can only imagine how that would have felt. I think it would have been difficult. Right? You know, I think about myself and my parents praying, and it took a lot of years, but then radical shift around, and I gave my life to Christ, and then you get free of all these drugs, and you get free, and then you're set free on this new path, and you're living for God, and you're loving Him, and it's great. Then I talk to another family, and their son's, walked away from the faith and it's totally trapped and nothing seems to be getting better and everything they try just seems to get worse. God, why can't you just do for us like you did for them? These are things, real questions that we have to wrestle with and and really what we're wrestling with is it's going back to what we talked about before is our picture of what our faith actually is built on. You see, are we actually building our faith on the premise of my life is going in the direction that I want it And Jesus, you're coming in and you're just going to keep me from all the potholes. Jesus, take the wheel. Or are we saying, I'm giving up my life. I'm laying it down and I'm picking up my cross and I'm going to follow you. And wherever it leads me, that's where I'm going to go. These are questions that we have to reconcile with. By the way, so you know, Mark 10, Jesus actually prophesied that that James would die. This is James and John he's talking. Do you remember they're having the argument of who's going to sit? 
next to the Father, and he says, look, Jesus says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. Jesus prophesied that James would die. Is that how we, can you imagine trying to win someone over to Jesus that way, right? You need Jesus in your life. I remember telling one guy, your life is, you know, when I look at it, your life is actually pretty good. Like the only thing you're missing is Jesus. Oh, terrible. That's, that's not a good way to lead people to Christ. And he's not still following the Lord, not surprisingly. But anyways, can you imagine the flip side going and saying, you should follow Christ. It's going to cost you everything. In fact, it'll cost you your life. I'd be closer to the truth. So points to consider, and this is what we'll end on. Perhaps you're here and you feel this way. You're stuck in that dilemma here. Why did you heal one and not the other? Maybe it's sickness or pain in your life that you've been dealing with for some time. You know God could take it away, but he doesn't. I've had to wrestle with that a bit. You go on holidays, this is to a small degree. All the pain gone. Come back, oh, <laughs> it's all back. And you're like, I know we could take it away, but something I've learned over my years with him, and I'm still learning it to a greater level, is, is that he's used it to keep me dependent on him. I don't even know that I'd want to live in a, way, in a place where I had no pain in my life. I'd be nervous that I'd stop spending as much time on my knees. But anyways, points to consider. Because maybe you're here struggling with an addiction or finances or a relationship or the salvation of a child. Maybe it's mental health. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's a family member that's dying, a, a bad diagnosis. And you're wondering what God is doing in all this. So I, I don't, I'm not gonna, we're not, we don't even have time to expand on the problem of evil. A lot of people have spent a lot more time that are a lot smarter than me on, on giving. I think there's good answers for that. But I don't think we get all of the answers on this side of heaven. But there are a couple of points that I'll encourage you to, to consider if you're here. And that is this. The first one is, do you trust God to make the right decision? This is a choice you get to make. And I'm not saying your feelings always line up. You see, we can't always control our feelings, can we? I can't, anyways, right? You're, you're going to feel what you're going to feel. But we, do, we are given a choice on how we are going to respond. We are given a choice. So, will we trust God to make the right decision? We look at stories like Joseph, right? And when he saw his brothers and they thought he was going to repay it all in them, what did he say? What you meant for harm, God meant for good. Joseph saw the hardship he went through in the, in the lens of eternity. He saw that God was working all things for good, even though it cost him greatly within his life. I mean, he never, yeah, he had a good life at the end. I mean, it was much better. But think of all the years he lost. He couldn't get those back. Job, the same thing. What about Jesus? Jesus prayed if this cup can pass. If there's any other way, but not as I will, but as? But as you will, right? So that's the choice that we get to make. Are we going to trust God to make the right decision? And then the second one is, are we going to submit to God's plan or become bitter? And I think about here, Matthew 11, uh, 4 to 6, this is John when he's in prison, right? So he's in prison, he sends his disciples over to Jesus, or, you know, are you the promised one? He's in prison, think about it. He's in prison, and this is Jesus' response to him. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Right? The prisoners are being set free, and yet John is in prison. 
and Jesus' encouragement to him, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Offense, as we've talked about lots last year, is one of the most deadly things that we can hold on to. And the Lord's encouragement to us is, blessed is he who is not offended by me. And that's, I wish we had more time to go on in that. But for the end, to close it off here, I want to do a prayer of commitment. Because our yes costs us something. We talked about that for a whole year, right? Given our yes. Yes, Lord, I will blank. Fill in the blank. What is your yes? Your yes is going to cost you something. Your yes is going to put you at odds with other people at some times. Your yes is going to cost you comfort. It will. Your yes is going to bring you into doing things that are hard. But your yes will also, will also have it so that you fulfill the purpose for which you were created. You will get to know your creator in a way that no one else gets to know other than those that also give their yes. And you get to spend an eternity with him. Restoration is coming. So, our prayer of commitment here. And um, if you want to just bow your heads. Maybe you're here and, and you've never actually given your life to Christ. You've never given him your yes. But you're here. Something has brought you here. Then today is that day. Lord, I would encourage you to just respond to the, to the Father by saying yes. Lord, for those who, who don't know you, who are here but they're just they're searching, they're seeking. Lord, today I ask that you would reveal yourself to them. That they would know your spirit, that they would know your goodness. That they would know your plan. Lord, today we receive you if you just want to follow me in this prayer. Lord, I believe in Jesus that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose again or seated next to the Father. And I believe that you are coming back. And today, Lord, I relinquish my life. I give it over to you. And I pick up the gift of salvation that you've given to me in your life. And I commit myself to following you as only Savior and as Lord. And for the rest of us, Lord, we're, we're committing to you that our homes, our lives, our tables, they're yours. The time you've given us, the finances, it's yours. Our yes, Lord, we don't just want to say yes. We don't want to be the son, as you said, the two sons. One said yes, he would go work in the field, but didn't go. The other said no, but ended up going. Lord, we want to be of the stock of those who say yes to you and then follow it through to the best of our abilities. So Lord, our yes, we want to be about the Father's business. Our yes, we want to grow in prayer. Our yes, we want to love you and trust you, even when it hurts. And today I just ask that you would help each one of us. What is that mountain that we're facing? What is that struggle right now that we're dealing with? Lord, today we are choosing to trust you to make the right decision. Lord, we are asking you to work. To work in these situations that we're bringing to you. We're asking that you would speak truth, that you would heal, that you would deliver. Lord, I think about Jesus praying in the garden and you sent an angel to strengthen him. Strengthen him so that he could die well. And then Peter, as they're praying, an angel comes and sets him free. Both for the honor and glory of your name. So Lord, today we ask for strength to endure. We ask for the power to break through. We ask for deliverance, for healing. And ultimately we ask that your will be done and not our own. In Jesus' name, amen.